And it always comes back to, even if it's just that one person and my story may not do anything for somebody, but do something for somebody else. And so that person that it doesn't do anything for could be your story and they'll connect to you and who you are. And we all may have experienced different things. Um, but it just, we relate to different people and we uh, find strength and encouragement in our, you know, in awe of these people. And you can be that person to somebody else. And even if it's just one, that's, that's one person. I was that victim and I needed that one person. This is episode number 189 with Jenna McKay. You're listening to American Snippets, the all-American podcast for those looking to dream bigger, live better, and make an impact. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to American Snippets. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, our guest today is Jenna McKay. Uh, Jenna is a survivor of human trafficking with an incredible life story that she now shares in trainings and keynote presentations. Uh, Jenna's story of being trafficked by her husband, uh, escaping her trafficker, and then struggling for years until she found a way to rebuild her health and her life is an inspiring story for anyone who feels stuck in their own pain. Uh, today, she continues to train hospital staff, law enforcement, and other professionals on how to identify victims of sex trafficking and labor trafficking and respond with victim-centered care. Uh, Jenna also started a nonprofit that supports trafficking survivors, and at-risk youth. So listen in as Jenna takes us through her story of betrayal, abuse, courage, and resilience. She she shares powerful insight on spotting signs of abuse, escaping an abuser, and overcoming trauma, as well as using personal pain as a powerful purpose to help others. So without further ado, here is Barbara Allen with Jenna McKay. You're listening to the American Snippets Podcast. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of American Snippets. I am so very happy and honored to be here today speaking to somebody that I just came across her story not that long ago, and I was instantly struck by it and said, oh my goodness, I need to get Jenna McKay on American Snippets, and we need to share her story and her message with everybody immediately. And and it happened just like that. Sometimes you got to just go do this. Jenna, thank you so much for taking the time to make our community one, one of the things you invest your energy in today and share your story with. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I love all your guests and all that you guys do. So I'm excited to be here. You have one of those stories. I don't know if you get the same thing I do. And it's so funny for me to to look at someone's story and say, oh my gosh, how did you go through that? Because I have people say that to me all the time. And I'm like, what do you mean? I just like how it was, how do you get through your life? You know, it's like so normal to me. Uh, so I don't know if that happens to you. And now here I am doing it to you too. It's funny how perspective just changes, but you do have a story. You are the survivor of some pretty intense uh, times. You were trafficked by your husband, nonetheless, at a very young age, you were, you went from, and this is especially important for, I think, young, vulnerable girls. Um, you were 18 years old. You were on the brink of becoming like a competitive volleyball athlete at the collegiate level. And within the span of months, you went from the competitive superstar athlete to a victim of sexual trafficking at the hands of your husband, you know, encounters with law enforcement in your life just took a complete pivot and people that think it could never happen to them, it would never happen to them or have preconceived notions of how it could happen to somebody else. And you, I really want you to pay extra close attention to this story. Uh, Jenna, your story has lessons for people going through specifically what you went through and they're uh, all different version of challenges as well. So let's get into it a little bit as you and I talked about before we started this recording. We're going to touch on your story. I'm not going to pull you deep into that. Um, you are actually writing a book on your story as well, right? Yes. Yes. I can't wait for that to come out. We'll track. We'll track that as well. So talk about it. In the span of 18, or in the span of just a few months, you were 18 years old. You're a senior in high school. Your parents are getting separated, and mm -hmm. you are under the spell of a predator without yeah. even. Uh, yeah, I wasn't a kid that you would expect to become a victim of trafficking. Uh, grew up, my dad was a farmer, my mom was a teacher. 
I had two big sisters and I started training for volleyball at 12 years old, really competitively. Um, and, uh, you know, my senior year, I started to struggle with my parents separating. Um, and there was nobody really guiding me or, um, asking, you know, how I felt about it. And I met the man that would become my trafficker in high school. And, you know, I went to a private Christian school, a good community in Southern California. And so there was no reason not to trust this person. He was not already a trafficker. It's something he later learned. Um, But he graduated a year before me and um, really kind of lured me out of high school still, uh, just promising that life would be better with him, that I could, you know, drop out and, and, and wouldn't have to deal with all the stress at home and all the, um, hardships and, um, and all the tough work that comes with, you know, being recruited for volleyball. And when I did that, uh, I really didn't think there was any going back, whatever life with him was, is what it was going to be. And I started to see some of the criminal activity he was involved in and, um, started experiencing domestic violence from him, um, without knowing that that's what it was. You know, I wasn't being physically beaten. So my idea as a young girl was, oh, well, I don't know what this is, but I don't like it, but this isn't domestic violence. And, um, and then we married, I didn't really want to get married. I really wanted to go play college volleyball. I really wanted to go and um, chase those dreams, but um, I just felt really stuck. And when I got married, I felt more stuck. And, um, and then this, you know, during this time, not long after he really learned that he could advertise me online and sell me. And, um, so then it began. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you were 18. I want to just like ram this home to everybody thinking you were 18 years old. And I know a lot of uh, people, you know, when you're a teenager, you think you have it all figured out. And I I would say maybe even more so now than even just a few years ago, the more evolved social media becomes teenagers, like everybody else, we have, we have access to all this information without the knowledge or wisdom to balance that. And so you feel like you're smart. You feel like, you know, everything and you're, you're not dumb, right? You're not an idiot, but you're naive and you're not, you're not, you don't have the wisdom and the insight, or sometimes maybe your self-confidence is easy to be broken down. And once somebody finds that crack and gets in there with malicious intent, it's like game over for a long time. Um, Right. What would be, I mean, you're, he got, he was convincing enough to get you to drop out of high school and go move in with him and then pressured you into marrying him even though that you had that like pit, like this isn't right. You know, what do you say to someone who says to you, I mean, you married him, you dropped out of school, like you reap what you sow. Yeah. There's a lot, you know, with any kind of sexual violence um, survivor, especially human trafficking, there's a lot of victim blaming and a lot of victims feel shame and thinking it's their fault. And I did experience some of that, but when it started, I knew I was a victim. I just didn't know what my options were. I didn't know how to get out of that situation. Um, you know, there was encounters with law enforcement and hospital staff. Um, he went really, he kept me in the same community that I grew up in, but he didn't take me to other States and other counties like traffickers often do. And, but he did go to extreme levels to keep me from my support system. He got a restraining order against my dad. Like I didn't feel like I could get go home. I didn't feel like I could call 911 and I didn't know what resources were available. And so that made me feel trapped and I was scared and I wanted out. But, um, you know, when we asked survivors, you know, why didn't you just run and why didn't you just call 911? Well, what we're doing is we're making the survivor feel like they have to, defend themselves for a crime that was committed against them. And, you know, it's like, I would remember being so frustrated when people would ask me things like that. I'm like, why am I getting so upset about this? Like, why are these people irritating me with this question? And I realized, cause it, it was making me feel like I was defending myself. Like, Oh, you don't understand. You weren't there. And you, and we, until we experience something like that, we don't understand what it's like. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 we need to put the blame back on the perpetrator and not the person that survived it. Yeah. And I mean, you weren't even all alone in the world. You had 
a family. I want to get into this a little bit. And some of the questions I'm asking you, because they also resonate deeply with me, my own experiences, and they're lessons that I know if I had known years ago, I would not have got myself in the same uh, situations as I did, um, some which, you know, overlap with yours. So I, I just want to keep continue like ramming these lessons home for anybody who needs to hear them really at this point. So you had a family that loved you, it, you know, that your parents were separated, but your family loved you, but you still felt like, like that perception was yours, not theirs, right? Like you felt like you couldn't go to them. And mm -hmm. what would you, you know, if you could go back to yourself in that moment thinking, I can't call my sisters, I can't call my dad. Um, what, what, is there anything that could have been said to you to break through that, to help you realize at that moment in time, not years later when you're, you know, when that happened and you had it, but at that moment in time, is there anything that could have broken through to you? Say, yes, there is help. Yeah. You just need to call. You just need to ask for help. Yes. Um, well, you know, there was enough shame for me in dropping out of high school and not going and playing college volleyball. Like that was embarrassing enough. I didn't want to see anybody from my community. And, you know, I remember a time when I was dry in the car, my trafficker was driving and my weight trainer who had helped me train for volleyball. Um, he pulled up next to us at a stoplight. And I remember sinking like back into the seat, like slouching down, hoping he wouldn't see me because I was physically different. You know, I looked like somebody who had been through some serious trauma and I was embarrassed by it instead of being like help, you know, which would most people think, you know, and, um, I think what I really needed was somebody to create a safe place for me to say, this is what you're surviving. Cause I didn't realize what I survived was human trafficking and this, you know, what you're experiencing is PTSD and these are the resources for you. And Hey, we can help you. We can keep you safe. We can help you go back to college. Like that's all I wanted. And, um, you know, when I was after the last time I was sold, I did have a phone call with my oldest sister and she didn't know I was being trafficked, but she knew I was married to a guy that they were not fond of. And, um, the conversation was really about getting away from him and leaving him. And she said, you know, Jenna, you can always come home. And until she said that, it never occurred to me. I did not think that that was an option for me. So that was the really, just the, her saying that really started me, um, the process to get away. Yeah. Isn't it, um, it's crazy how just the impact of one conversation can have on a life, you know, for, for good or for bad, uh, sometimes just certain words get to you at certain times and lock you in. And I mean, you were, again, you were 18 when he pressured you into marrying him and like nobody even came to your wedding. I mean, your family didn't support this. No, they, they weren't, they didn't like the guy, you know, his parents even didn't want us to, um, you know, they thought we were too young. I really didn't, I had a conversation with them about not wanting to, but there was this huge pressure and, um, you know, being with him, my insecurity, it, I became very insecure. And so it was almost like, well, he might leave me if I don't marry him. And, you know, being a young 18 year old, you know, I hadn't even graduated high school. I was just a kid and uh, not able to make those kinds of decisions. So. Yeah. I can tell you that there are women older than you, much significantly older than you who would fall under the same pressure, who would, you know, who would crack under the same pressure. It's, you know, the mind games, the emotional games, they're real. They're no joke. They hold a really significant power over someone. And that's, that's why people use them so effectively. You know, yeah. I think if, I think it's easier to use on somebody who has a naturally good heart and a trusting nature and who you've broken down, you know, to, to break their, your confidence and make them dependent on you. I mean, it's a pretty simple formula, but it's a diabolical one. And when you just can't grasp the enormity of what's being done to you, like the shock kicks in and you just, it's hard to believe what's even happening. You froze for a sec. We'll wait yeah, for it. Froze, yeah. yeah, we'll wait for That's all right. We'll just but, hang out for a sec. Wait for it to unfreeze. No, I was babbling anyway, so we'll, we'll be able to cut that out. But okay. <laughs> um, wait, there we go. Unfreeze. So yeah, so it can just be hard to, hard to process when that happens. And I know in your life, it must have felt like a lifetime, but when I think you look at the actual time span, you found a way out 
in in relative terms, it didn't take you long to say no, you know, to to find that out, even though, you know, it took too long, right? I mean, 10 minutes is different depending on, on where you are, right? But um, some there was that strength in you that you just hit that point and said, no, what was that? What was that moment? And I have heard you talk about this before, um, but I'd like you to share it again to at least some some degree that you're comfortable with just to just to convey it and let people understand like what it takes sometimes to to get through to someone. Yeah. Um, you know, the last time, you know, without going into too much detail, um, the last time I sold was was sold was the most horrific. Um, it was the first time that I experienced a beating. Um, this abuse lasted all night. Um, you know, I was still so young and innocent. Um, I didn't know people could be raped the way that I was. And it was like, you know, it was like every time I thought it couldn't get worse, it did. And this just felt like the lowest, like, oh my gosh, like, is this really my life? And I, I always thought about my family and my teachers and my coaches and then my community. And I remember, you know, I was in that room the next morning looking at myself in the mirror, just crying, like, wow, just months before this, I was this buff athlete and this confident girl who had good friends and got decent grades and just a normal American kid. And now look at me, like, how did this happen? And you know, I motivational speeches like from my coaches and my weight trainer and like those kind of things would always stick with me. Like it helped me survive, like the mental toughness and the um, sports psychology, like, you know, striving, like, oh, I want more out of life. Like this can't be my life. This can't, I don't have to be living this way. And um, I knew I wanted to get away. And so I, you know, I had that phone call with my big sister and I and I kind of thought of different things. You know, I wanted my GED. Um, I felt like I needed that piece of paper as, um, you know, a start to a new life. And uh, so my sixth grade teacher, I studied with her um, really without my trafficker knowing to get my GED and, you know, getting how did you GED. How did you do that? How did, did you call her? I'm guessing. You, did you? Yeah, she was one of my favorite teachers and she always kept in touch with me. I remember when I got married, you know, nobody really liked the idea of it, but she sent me a card in the mail and always had a big impact on me. And um, I just can't stayed in touch with her. And I don't remember how, but I remember going to her house a few times and you know, she helped me pass that test. And, oh, and that's going amazing. Yeah, going through that kind of trauma and passing something like that, it felt like I got my PhD, <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like, and like, it was kind of a boost, you know, oh, I could do this, I can, and maybe I can go back to school and, you know, and, um, and I really promised him that I would never tell anybody. And I think he believed that he, you know, he knew that I was scared if anybody found out, he kind of made it look, he kind of told me like, you know, I'll make it look like we were in this together and that horrified me. Like, I didn't want anybody to think that. And um, so I really promised him that I would keep quiet and just move on. And I thought I could go the rest of my life without telling anybody. And after a doctor's visit, when nobody was talking to me, nobody was recognizing the signs um, or offering help. And, you know, looking the way I did, I was like a hundred pounds. My hair was falling out. I had a branding tattoo from him. I had um, various stages of bruising. I was acting erratic. Like no doctor or nurse was sitting me down saying, Jenna, what happened to you? And like, this is what you survived. And this is what we can do to help you. So that rebellious spirit stirred up in me again. And I was like, well, nobody cares. I'm not going to tell anybody. Yeah. And, and uh, I went, it was six years before I came out with it. Wow. That's a, that's a longer time. So like, for a longer time, you were trapped in your own head and fears and untreated pain than mm -hmm. you were trapped physically, you know, with him. So his hold extended on you well beyond the time that you got away from him. For that's sure. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's a, uh, that's almost to me like more tragic, <laughs> you know, in some ways. And I'm sure to you too. Um, and it's what led you. And I know, I mean, you wound up in the, in a mental health unit of a hospital with your, what happened? And I, again, I'm, I'm pulling this from other interviews and I don't mean to jump over it, but I just want to nail these significant 
points. And I would encourage anybody who wants to know more is like, what's, what do you mean she did this or she did that? We're going to share Jenna's website with you later and connect you with her. And I would encourage you to go back and find her full story. But for now, we'll just jump to different segments of it so we can move into other things. Um, but you, at one point, you fell in love, you got married, you had a two-year-old son, and you were and you had you had literally been begging for help to so many people. And it was like nobody heard you or nobody understood how to process it. Is that what I mean? Yeah, you know, when I when I was being trafficked, so yeah. many people saw things and would be like, Are you okay? You know, I was working normal jobs during the day and I had a boss, uh, she would always ask me, Are you okay? You don't look well, something going on. And I was like, Oh, I'm good. You know, I'm fine. And just kept that. And I became very good at that. So I did move on. I got married. Um, you know, I married a Marine. We got stationed at Quantico Marine Base. Like for me, that was like my freedom ticket. Like, yes, I get to be across the country. Nobody knows me. Fresh start. We had a son. Um, and even though like I was living this life that I was excited about, I was still very much experiencing PTSD. I would have nightmares and flashbacks and, um, you know, I'd go into a store and think I would see one of the men that raped me. Like it was awful, but I just got very good at pushing it down and like, no, I'll be okay. Like I have this great life now. I'm fine. I, you know, so, um, and you know, it was six years after being trafficked and I just had a breakdown. I just, I, it really started with a doctor's appointment. Um, you know, I'd been to the doctor many times, any kind of pelvic exam. I always had the same reaction, very um, like a panic attack. Nobody ever said anything. And then, you know, after this appointment, this doctor pulled me in her office and she said, Jenna, have you ever been sexually abused? And I thought, how does she know? Like, it's like she uncovered my secret right there. Like, I went to the doctor looking the way I did right when I got away from him and nobody said anything. And here I am healthy, fit, happy. How does she, like, she saw the signs and she asked and, you know, I didn't spill it all out right there. Like, yes, please help me. And this is what happened when I was 18, but she triggered something in me. And I started to really experience like heightened PTSD and I couldn't stop thinking about my past. And I went, um, I called my husband and said, you know, I'm going to the emergency room. I'm, I need help. And um, uh, they described this place that, you know, sounded like that movie Girl Interrupted. I was like, I am not going there. There is no way. Um, yeah, and your husband didn't know the extent of what you'd been through. I no, thought. he knew. Right. He knew like, you know, I, I had seen a therapist here and there. And I kind of what I told her, I had an abusive first husband. Uh, there was emotional abuse and sexual abuse. Um, but I never talked about the rapes and right. I never talked about the trafficking and That's really with anybody. I mean, I might have shared bits and pieces, but not the full story. And when I went to this hospital, it was so scary. And then as soon as I walked in there, I was like, do whatever you have to do to get out. So I cooperated. I talked but I still wasn't sharing the full story. Did you, like, did you regret when you got there? Were you regretting the decision to go in or were you like, okay, game on time to go? Like, did you wish that you hadn't or were you glad that you did, even though you were like just now fully aware of how hard this was going to be? I wanted help. I didn't want to experience this trauma anymore. Right. Um, it was just going to take a lot for me to share something I'd kept quiet for six years. And, and I was really having a hard time being away from my son who was now two. Um, but you know, even though I wasn't sharing all of my story, I was talking about some of it and that really triggered, um, nightmares. And during this time at home, I was sent home after three days and, uh, with medication and I had an overdose. And when I was, long story short, sent back to inpatient care, there was this woman in the corner who I had heard some of her story. It was some of it was similar to mine. And she was like in the corner, like rocking and hovering, holding herself. And I was like, if I don't get this out of me, I'm going to end up dead or like her. And the next therapy that day was art therapy. 
and they asked us to draw what we were afraid of. And they said, we can put it in our binders or keep it to ourselves. And the first time in six years I stood up, I had drawn stick figure men. And I said, when I was married at 18, my, he had men come to our apartment and rape me and they paid him for it. I don't know what that means. I just know I'm afraid of men. And it was like, the truth will set you free in that mental hospital with the barbed wire around it that I could not leave on my own free will. I was fr- that was the first experience of freedom that I felt in six years. And that team jumped into action. That's great. I mean, and I mean, I'm so, I'm so glad you went through and found that help and had the strength to see it through. It must've been really hard to make that decision to say to your husband, Hey, I need to do this and I'm going to leave my son and I'm going to do all like knowing that that exposed a whole other area, you know, area that could cause more pain down the road, but you did it. And what would be your message to somebody who could be listening and also feels like, they're in some situation that they're just no way out of. They're just trapped and there's nothing. Sometimes when you look ahead and you say, oh, the pain of healing from this or the pain of escaping or fixing is unknown and different and scarier than the pain that I know. Like, I, you know, I'd rather deal with the pain I know than the pain I don't know. You know, what would, yeah. what would be your words to them? You know, I always talk, you know, I'm very honest. Like when I work with other survivors of trafficking, I'm like, it is going to take work and hard work, but it's so worth it to get onto the other side. And you're not alone. You know, there are people that want to help you and see you through it. And the things that are waiting on that other side are so worth working towards. And I couldn't, as soon as they told me in the hospital, what you're survived was human trafficking and what you are experiencing is PTSD it was like having the terms I was allowed to heal now, like what, that's what I survived. And that's what I have. And then I couldn't read enough about it. And I, and then I couldn't do enough of the work, every kind of therapy that provided, you know, my, my binder was full. I was just, again, and it's easy. It sounds so easy to say, I just did the work and I know people will start the work and just stop at the first, you know, it's hard and, and you know, and you retreat and you all this, but I feel like there's almost a person has to actually come to that place themselves. They have to decide for themselves and commit to that themselves. Um, sometimes people have to go lower and lower and lower until they make. like, you can't force that decision on somebody to do that work. But when the more stories like yours that are heard and told and shared, I think the more validity it gives to somebody struggling with that decision that, you know, Yes, I, I can do this. So how I, ironic is it to you a little bit that you went from this person who was terrified to tell the story, determined not to tell your story. Now you are telling your story everywhere to everyone. You're on giant platforms. You speak at the UN. You train law enforcement, hospital staff. You have your own foundation. You work with survivors. And I mean, that's in this from the time that you started down that path of professional help and healing to the time that you maybe gave your first talk or whatever that first step was, how, about how long was that? Um, so after I got out of the hospital, we were stationed back to Camp Pendleton in Southern California. And then four months later, my husband left and it was like starting at rock bottom again, square one, not even focusing on this healing anymore. Now trying to go through this heartbreak and be a single mom, working multiple jobs, living in a crummy apartment. You know, you're a badass, right? (laughs) I know a badass. I'm just saying, Um, but yeah, go ahead. uh, That was not a fun time. I mean, I don't know. It was, um, I look back on that time and it was like a three-year period where I'm like, I think the only thing that really got me through was my son and I leased a horse on the base to ride for therapy because I couldn't afford regular therapy. And I was like, just cluck, you do what you have to do. And especially when you're a mom, you just have to suck it up. Like the days you don't want to get out of bed, that little kid is counting on you. And, um, I, you know, he saved my life so many times and, um, he froze. Oh, Hummer. I think it's, I feel like it's when I move a lot. <laughs> Don't move. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, be still. I'll just, I'll just wait till you come back. Um, Cause yeah. those are uh, good things. As long as you're patient with it. Um, oh yeah. We'll um, 
we can be oh there you are okay, okay. so you were saying sorry again uh you know what saved you was your son yeah so um you know and I you just do what you have to do and but after three years you know I was working at a ranch I was coaching volleyball working seven days a week and uh who was taking care of your son during that how did you how did I you had him balance in, that yeah I had him in, we split time you know he went to his dad's and then me and then um um, I had my parents that weren't too far away and then he, I had them in preschool during the day. Okay. Um, but I would, you know, I'd, I'd work at the ranch, you know, eight to five, pick him up from preschool and then go coach two different teams till nine 30 at night, like yeah. man, those days and then go home to this apartment with cockroaches <laughs> like running oh, in the man. kitchen. Like it was pretty depressing. And I was like, this, ca- this can't be it. After three years of that, I'm like, I didn't come this far to come this far kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like there has to be more. And in the, in the hospital, you know, it was so life-changing for so many reasons, but one of the things they asked us to do was to write our story down. And what it did was put everything in perspective. My trafficking experience was now this much of my life, not my whole life. And um, I remember after I wrote it down and read through it, I wrote, on the journal, I wrote book question mark. And then I just kind of left it like, maybe it'd be a good book someday. And, you know, and, um, another thing that happened during the hospital is even though I was there for my own healing, I would talk to these other women who had been through horrific things and they would come to me and I was like, wow, maybe I could help somebody with my story. Like it really started in the hospital. And I didn't realize there was this whole human trafficking movement happening um, that there was all these survivors speaking out and there was all these different avenues to do this work in. Um, I just knew I had a story and I wanted to do something with it. And a place opened up on my family's ranch in Northern California. And I packed everything I owned into a horse trailer, (laughs) major redneck style. I quit my jobs and I drove up North. And then I sat by a lake for like, six months crying every day. Like, what did I do? I have no idea what I'm doing. No connections. And that awesome big sister that I had that phone call with when I was leaving my trafficker, she said, you know, she's a professor. And she said, maybe take a college course, even if your brain can only handle one. And so I did. And I took a sociology class and I speak for that professor now. Um, How did that come to happen? How did your professor come to know your story? And then come to ask you to speak? Yes. Yeah, so uh, I had written about it a little bit in a paper. Um, I was, I had just spoken at a juvenile hall, you know, I was volunteering for an anti-trafficking organization and we went to a juvenile hall and I had shared some of my story and I wrote about it in a paper and he called me up after class and said, what is this Jenna? Like, what are you doing? And I told him, you know, some of my story and I, I shared what my goals were. And um, I told him that I was starting to write this book and, uh, he got me connected with the communications professor to start a documentary. We're still looking to finish that, but uh, you know, he was very supportive and like, you're doing the sociology work that I encourage my students to do. Um, awesome. And I would just speak anywhere that anybody would listen. Like I would walk in places and be like, hi, I'm Jenna. And this is my story. Like anybody, if I don't care if there's two people, I just yeah. wanted to talk about this, which led to, you know, finding a a speech coach and getting keynote speeches. And then I discovered other survivors, which was really healing. Um, And I saw um, what some of them were doing and these trainings. And I'm like, wow, like law enforcement let me down so many times to, to educate them so they could do better for the next girl. Like that sounds awesome. What was the reception when you went to your first moment when you did the first law enforcement training, what was the reception from the law enforcement officers when you showed up and said, this is what I'm going to talk about. And this is why I'm going to talk about it. Uh, it, It's extremely, first of all, really healing when you get the response, like this is so helpful, or I didn't realize that these were victims. I thought they were doing so by choice. So a doctor came up to me after a training and I had just been talking about, you know, brandings and the tattoos that traffickers put on their victims. And, um, He said, you know, I had a girl come into my emergency room and she had one in her private area and I didn't understand like that really was bizarre to me. And now he's like, wow, that's 
that was for sure a branding and she was a trafficking victim and I had no idea. And so to teach them to recognize those signs and then how to respond with victim centered care when you're being objectified and, and raped and um, treated less than human to have a professional, you know, with a gun on their hip and the person in the white coat, take the time to sit down and look you in the eye and respect you and listen to you. That's, that's all that takes. It's life-changing. And so to have that kind of respect as a survivor, you know, sharing my story and, and, and teaching them how we can do better um, means everything. Yeah. So I want to get into the foundation that you started and the work you do with the UN to enormous, enormous things that, Again, if you look back to that 18-year-old girl, the 19-year-old girl, even the girl in the years after, and you tell her, hey, one day you're going to be doing all these things, right? Like what, what a gigantic uh, difference and, and turnaround is possible if you, you know, if you work for it and want it and believe in it, right? What came first? Your foundation came first? Uh, the yeah, UN? the foundation was, yeah, for sure. That started in, at the end of 2016, with really just wanting to be the person that I needed. I needed an advocate. I, you know, when I went to that doctor after getting away from a trafficker, I needed somebody to speak up for me. Um, so to do that, you know, whatever the survivor needs, it's different on every case. So yeah, so your foundation, you find, you raise funds and you help these survivors do these things that they wouldn't ordinarily be able to afford to do, or it can be all the difference between getting through today to that next step to where they need to go to move forward, which is enormous in somebody's life. How did you, when you got the idea, like, Hey, I want to start this nonprofit. You didn't just like say, Hey, I want to start this nonprofit and everything fell into place and all the support showed up and all you had to do was sign something and everything was just amazing. Right. You know, how did you, how did you go from concept to execution? Um, Well, the publisher for my book really uh, was like the biggest mentor and some other survivors that were already doing the work. Um, and, and then I just started doing it one little thing at a time. You know, I started off with, I had no money. I had a track phone. I live on a ranch and it didn't get good service. So a girl would text me and I would drive to the levee, answer her call, go put 10 bucks in my gas and go help her and get her what she needed. And that's how it, I mean, it just, you start with what you have. If you are passionate about it, nothing will stop you. Uh, I love you know. that. I love that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it just started to grow. And like one of the things I've been riding horses my whole life, I come from a big horse family and I'm like, man, I, that'd be awesome to get these girls some horse therapy. And so I just started making connections in the community and, um, I found a, 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 a equine therapist and, and she mostly worked with autistic kids. And I just kind of said, you know, how about working with sex trafficking survivors? And, and she, I'm more of a tough, like, Hey, this keep on track. Like, this is what we got to do with them. You know, they kind of need that tough person, but she's very calm and patient. So it's great to have the mix. They get the me yin and, and the yang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, aren't you so excited for horse therapy? Like, and it's amazing yeah. to hear these girls stories and heartbreaking things that they've experienced. And to see them up on a horse smiling is everything. I am a horse person myself. And I totally understand that and get that. I have horses. I've been around them my life and, and, and I know the therapeutic impact that they have. So this makes absolute sense to me for somebody who may be listening, who is like horses, what, you know, um, I'd encourage you to kind of open up your mind, check it out, learn about it and um, maybe share your stories. I know people who have programs for veterans and their families, you know, for that use horses as therapy. There's a lot of those programs now. Uh, And it's really just a phenomenal thing. And I like how you use that yourself. I want to go back to one second that you mentioned the horses because you had another you have a lot of like powerful nuggets in here, in your stories, powerful lessons um, that are heard. When you said that you couldn't afford therapy, but you had access to a horse that you could use, that message is, to me, what I pull from that is that just because you can't do the one thing the one way, there's always a way, right? So for you, it would be horses. What would be your advice to somebody who says that to you? I want help, but I can't afford it. 
Yeah. There's so many ways to heal and we all heal differently. Like I still go to normal therapy and I love that and I'll do that forever probably. Um, but if you, if you, you can always do the work, you don't necessarily need anyone or anything. You can just do the work on your own. And so then to have those extra resources helpful, but it's really up to you. And okay. But they say, Jenna enough, you're crazy. Only (laughs) other people can do the work on their own. I can't do the work on my own. How am I supposed to, what do you mean do the work on my own? How how am I supposed to, you know, when somebody comes back at you with that, I can see your face already. Like, yes, you can. Like, you're just kidding. I'm like, you can do it. I would, I would say that's where the power is because nobody can do it for me. Like you almost, it's too overwhelming. Like, Oh, I'm the only one that can do it. No, I'm the only one that can do it. That's, that's where my power comes from and start off with writing your story down. Everything you can remember. I don't care if you cry, scream, rip up the paper, throw it away, get it out of you. And then look at it and it will help you put things into perspective too and start there. And, um, and then, you know, doing the things that are therapeutic, get outside, go for a run, lift some weights, go do some kickboxing, get it out of you. Um, and then get, try and get connected to the resources. Cause there are, there are people that want to help and there is a way. I love that. And now, um, to somebody who may have a story or feel like they have you know, there's nothing special about me. I could never have an impact on other people the way that Jenna is, you know, she's, she's Jenna and, and I'm me, like how I could never do what she's doing. I like my, I'm nobody special. I don't have that. You know, I, I don't know if people have said that to you before, but I'm like projecting what I'm hearing people thinking or responding, you know, as they listen to the story, all the reasons not to do something, you know, but it's, I think it's most of it's fear-based, right. And, and confidence-based, but what would you say to somebody? I mean, you, you took a situation that was absolutely horrific and impacted you and you've turned it into a situation, which is absolutely profound and is impacting lives dramatically you know, across the country and now even on a bigger basis with the UN. So what would be a, some, some words of advice that you would say to somebody who thinks that they don't have what it takes to do that? Oh, you know, there's been so many times where like after a training, maybe there wasn't a big response. Um, or I just felt like I didn't reach anybody. And I'm like, you know, I feel like I get, it's almost like a high after I'm like, I have to go for a drive after every speech and training. I'm like, whoa, I need my music. And I'm like (laughs) thinking to myself, did that really make a difference? Like, is anybody going to do anything with that? And it always comes back to, even if it's just that one person and my story may not do anything for somebody, but do something for somebody else. And so that person that it doesn't do anything for could be your story and they'll connect to you and who you are. And we all may have experienced different things. Um, but uh, just we relate to different people and we uh, find strength and encouragement in our, you know, in awe of these people and you can be that person to somebody else. And even if it's just one, that's, that's one person. I was that victim and I needed that one person. So I love that, man, you have a lot of, you're going to play this back. I want you to listen back to this later. And I'm like, I don't know if you use this stuff in your talks, but um, you really should uh, because it's powerful, the stuff that you're saying, and it's coming from the heart in a place of um, just wisdom that can only be found when you really connect with, with what you're doing on such a deep level. How did you, what is the work that you do with the UN? Yeah. So at the beginning of, um, 2020, I was in New York, um, doing hospital trainings and there was this delegate from the United Nations in the audience. And, um, after, you know, I was going back to my hotel room and the Uber had to take me back because he couldn't go to the area that I needed. And I ended up in an Uber with her (laughs) and, uh, she, we were talking and I was learning about her life. I'm like, how did you get to the UN? And to hear about her personal life was really cool. And, um, and, uh, she said, you know, would you maybe be interested in speaking at the United Nations? And I was like, oh yeah, that's a Tuesday. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, 
I was like, absolutely sign me up. I will be here next week if you need me. And, um, and then the pandemic happened and it was supposed to happen in May. And so, you know, we're thinking hopefully it will happen in 2022. Um, but then, uh, you know, a few months ago, they, she started this organization called the Global Strategic Operatives, and they focus on training medical staff um, nationally and internationally. So I'll be, I'll be training with them. Um, I'm learning the trainings now and will be started soon. And places like Albania and Romania and Latin America, and, you know, and the way that trafficking looks in California versus, you know, New York versus Russia, like it it's really based on the culture of that community and where the vulnerabilities are and where how people are trafficked and what it looks like, you know, there's over 25 ways that people can be trafficked. And so what are some of those ways? Cause you know, the, the Hollywood ways and not, and not to make light of it. Right. Because that is a very real way um, where it happens. But I think as you mentioned in one of your interviews and most people think trafficking, they think, physically kidnapped and taken and sold on a market and handed off to this person or that person. But you're saying, and now we hear your story that, you know, it can happen right in your home at the hands of your spouse. What are some other ways that that can happen? One of the surprising things that I learned of was like in cantinas. And when I heard that, um, I thought of labor trafficking, like, oh, for sure. They're being forced to work there. Um, but it was sex trafficking. So you could go into a cantina and order a beer, pay $5 for it and you get a beer. And then if you order a beer and pay $20 for it, you get a ticket and there's women being held back behind the property that are being trafficked. That's happening in this country. Yes. In this Uh, country, in the United States of America, in small town USA, you could go in somewhere and purchase time with a woman who's being held against her will and yeah and sometimes adults and sometimes children um and you know and and then more you know places like strip clubs pornography escort services um any place hospitality uh agriculture communities lots of labor trafficking um in brothels there's brothels (laughs) in america um you know 12 to 14 there's a stat um it's from the National Center for Missing and, and Exploited Children. And they say one in seven American kids will run away from home and one in three will become victims of trafficking within 48 hours. Like within those 48 hours, somebody will contact them about purchasing them for sex wow. and how quick it happens, right? It's, um, there's so, so what much- What would you to- say to parents then of adolescents or teenagers? And I, I'm thinking girls, but I'm sure this happens with boys as well, right? Who, what are some signs that a parent can look for that they're being groomed online or in person for something? How, how can a parent know? I have four boys that I have just almost gotten them all through their teen years. You know, they're, my youngest is uh, 17 now, and then there's 19 and 21 and 22. I remember thinking I was plugged into them and dialed in. And if there was something really wrong, I would know because my kids tell me everything. And, you know, I found out well after the fact that there were things going on that I had no idea about. And I considered myself accessible and approachable and a parent that my kids would talk to. Right. But so what are some things for parents to be on the lookout for as much as you can be? Right. Definitely being aware of what they're doing with any technology, who they're talking to, know who they're talking to. But I think, you know, education, you know, and not just education on trafficking, um, but education on the grooming process. How do traffickers and predators work? How do they groom kids? How do they build trust? Because then if they're talking to somebody online and they start to see these red flags, like, "Mm, this doesn't feel right. It could prevent that's the prevention side and teaching it in schools. I love teaching, um, talking to kids and, 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 um, the school staff, because, you know, we teach our kids to stop, drop and roll. How many kids are experience a fire at school? How many kids are being sexually abused at home and groomed at home and, and are very vulnerable to being trafficked or preyed on for anything. So, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but it's necessary. And at every age level, you know, it can be a little different, but 
uh, it's, we need to educate them because if I had known, you know, there was signs before I was trafficked, if I had been educated on it, I really could have prevented it from myself from happening. What are some of those signs? So the domestic violence was one, the controlling behaviors, taking my phone and my keys and, um, you know, blocking me in a hallway, uh, uh, the manipulation, taking my money, taking my paychecks. Um, and then the branding was a huge one. Um, when I, he was, took me down to Tijuana in Mexico and had me branded and I knew I didn't like it. I knew that it was a horrific experience and really traumatizing, but I didn't know what that was. Um, uh, you know, those were, those were a couple and just some of the criminal activity he was involved in who he was around. Um, yeah. yeah. So I do know some people who are in that arena with you in their own group. Uh, one group is coming to my mind or an organization called veterans for child rescue. And I, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they like actually run these stings and go in and rescue kids. And then you know, sort of liaison with aftercare, right? But they've been really impacted in this wave of politics where their political stance has caused them, their organization has been removed from online, like their platform has been taken down and they've been silenced and and censored and all of that. Um, Have you impact, have you felt an impact or seen that happening across the way? Like what, are you feeling any impact of political unrest on the mission of helping, um, you know, children? And if so, is there a way or guidance how we can work past that? So one is not impacted by the other. Yeah. You know, to think of my own experience or the victims experiencing it, they don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. They just want help. So like politicians that are, you know, creating laws that are for better for victims, you know, there was a recent case in Ohio where uh, the attorney general said, oh, she was uh, rescued and arrested. That should not be in the same sentence. Yeah. (laughs) And so, right. So uh, that's where the education and the trainings and that is so important because uh, we need to learn not just how to prevent it, but how to respond. And that trauma-informed care is so important. And, you know, I, this is a human issue and this is everybody's issue. Everybody should just the way we did with domestic violence and child abuse and smoking and drinking and driving, everybody should be educated on this and aware and know what to do when they see it. And so it's, it's, there's no, there's politics involved, but it's not, it shouldn't matter what um, somebody's personal politics are. This is an issue where we should be responding. It's a human life. And, and do you hear from people like, do people still sort of resist your information and hold on to the belief that these things are not happening in this country or couldn't happen to them or couldn't happen to somebody they know, or, I mean, what are the odds? You know, I go out, right. I, well, now lately, you know, travel has been restricted, but flying cross country, flying to events, going out in my community to the grocery store, what are the odds in my everyday life that I'm walking right next to somebody who is being trafficked without even knowing it? Yeah, all the time, right? Like there's, it's, it's second to drug trafficking, possibly surpassing it, you know, especially with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I remember when I first moved here to do this work, I would ask people in my community, professionals or just public in general, like, hey, what's trafficking? Is there a trafficking going on here? Knowing the answer, uh, where there's a survivor, there's a victim. And they would say, oh, maybe, you know, in the Bay Area, Oakland, Sacramento, Chico. And I'm like, uh-oh, they don't even think it's happening here. So they're definitely not responding. Um there was a time that I spoke at a church and the youth pastor had me speak to the youth group. There was like 80 kids. Then a different night I came back for a parent forum and like 10 parents showed up and he was so frustrated. And I said, this is the idea of that couldn't happen to my kid. And that doesn't happen here. And to that, I say, say that to my parents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it can, and it can happen to anybody's kid. Anybody can be a buyer. Anybody can be a trafficker and anybody can be a victim when it comes to human trafficking. And so um, it is happening in our communities, whether it's a rural agriculture town like that I live in or a big city. 
Um, wow, that's just, it's like sad to me to think that I might've been passing by someone who needs help so badly and just like have literally no clue that all it would take is me to reach out their hand and say, you know, come on, I got you. Let's get you some help. You know, I think so many people would, if some, I don't know anybody personally who would knowingly pass somebody by when all it took was to hold out your hand and say, I got you, let's get you some help. Right. So I know that all these people I know would also be devastated to think that they've had that opportunity and, and had no idea, like zero idea. Uh, that that was out there. So yeah, for sure. And I think back, you know, going back again to my own experience, like even if somebody, you know, when those times when somebody asked if I was okay or showed me a little bit of kindness, that got me through the day. You know, I would go to work and I'd be in a safe place and there would be music playing and I would be around nice, normal people and I'd get to see them be normal. Even though I had to go home to that at night, I got to experience kindness during the day and that it helped you know, and the little bit of kindness throughout my story and the people, you know, at the hospital that like, I had this amazing therapist and case manager and I was not fun. I was mental hospital, Jenna, you know, and this case manager would sit there and listen to me and I would be cussing and yelling and acting erratic. And then he'd say, okay, Jenna, are you done? Are you ready to talk? And just create this place for me and build this trust. And this therapist who I knew when she was on her lunch break, And she would take this extra time and do all these amazing therapies with me. And I wasn't just a number to her. She cared about my healing and they changed my life, right? They were all part of that healing journey. So we can all be that person, just showing a little kindness, looking somebody in the eye. You never know what anybody's going through. I love it. Thank you so much for people who want to find out more about you. Well, hang on. And before I go, I know your book isn't out yet, but it, is there a timeline for that to happen? Do you have a title? Uh, not yet. i working on the title. I'm going to be reading through the manuscript and making edits, hopefully by March, but it'll be on the website and social media. You'll see it advertised. Excellent. So please do, um, if I somehow miss it, well, I'll sign up for whatever list you're on so that, or that you have, right? I'm sure you have a list of people want to subscribe or go to your website or follow you as a place that we can go and pop our email in and and keep up on yeah, that you, uh, you know, social media, Instagram, Jenna McKay, Facebook, Jenna McKay foundation, and then Jenna McKay.com. And, uh, you'll see everything will be up on there and there's some stuff there, my, my full story and, um, some of the work we're doing. And so, yeah. Excellent. Thank you. And if you have one more nugget to offer somebody who's sort of drowning, it doesn't have to be from trafficking, but from whatever, there's a lot of hopelessness in this country right now for so many different reasons. Um, Would you have any words for somebody to kind of reverse that feeling in their head or at least give themselves a reprieve from it? Like what are some things that people can do to kind of numb down the hopelessness and start replenishing that with some hope? Yeah. I, I know what it's like to, you know, be at rock bottom, you know, my trafficking experience when my husband left, like, thinking that there's no hope and that this must be what my life is and just feeling sitting there in heartbreak. And, um, but there is, there is life after that heartbreak, there is happiness and love and, um, you can do it. I, I believe in you. I see you, I hear you and reach out for help wherever you are. And, um, Oh, I just, Oh, I just want, I'm like, you can do it. I, I, just, like, I just think back to those times. And I yeah. remember feeling like there's no way out of this, but there is, and it'll, the best is yet to come. I love it. Jenna, thank you so much really for all you do and taking the time to sit with us today. Thank you. <laughs> all right, everyone. There you have it. That wraps up another episode of the American Sippets podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'd like to personally thank Jenna McKay for being here as well and sharing her powerful and inspiring story. Uh, head on over to americansnippets.com forward slash newsletter uh, for all the show notes, re-listen to the podcast, watch the video interview, and we also include some links there that you can use to follow Jenna on social. Again, that's americansnippets.com. 
forward slash newsletter. If you got any value out of today's episode, uh, all we ask each and every week is that you leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. So if you haven't done that yet, please leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. So if you're not an Apple user, you can use something called podchaser.com or download the Podchaser app. But if you have an iPhone, just go to your podcast app or go to Apple Podcasts, look for the American Sippets podcast, uh, and at the bottom, you'll see a little a little blurb that says, write a review. We would really appreciate it. iTunes reviews really help us grow our audience and get higher up in the search rankings so we can share and get these stories out there in front of more people. Again, we appreciate you being here today. Now go out there and show the world how exceptional you really are. Yeah.